Well, good morning. And here we are again. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. You can open it, uh, or use your app or iPhone or phone or tablet. And we're in Hebrews chapter 13 is where we will be. Um, let me go back a minute. Um, and we're going to be talking as we're going through this book, verse by verse. We're not going to stop doing that. We're almost at the end. And this morning's topic really is mostly about church leadership, uh, the importance of leadership in the church. And we know the exact recipients and human authors of Hebrews is unknown, but the divine author we do know. Uh, it was God, the Holy Spirit, who moved men, uh, men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that we can say as the apostle or with the apostle Paul that all scripture is breathed out by God, exhaled by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God, that the child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And although we only know the divine author, we will see today that the recipients of this letter and the, 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 the uh, author of this letter know each other and know each other well. And we're going we're gonna to see that this morning. And during our study, we've been saying over and over again how the author has stressed this, this reoccurring exhortation to stand firm in the faith. To not abandon, to not go back, to not turn on Christ and not go back to former ways of, of communion with God. Why? Because Jesus is not only a far better mediator, but Jesus is, we've seen in this book, not only the far better mediator, but he is the only mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And therefore, we must never find other ways or look for other ways to have fellowship or enter into fellowship with God. The author is over and over again, especially in the first 10 chapters, has very convincingly argued the superiority and supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. So why would we look anywhere else? Place your faith, keep your faith in Jesus Christ. And now at the end of the book of Hebrews, he continue his exhortation to remain faithful by giving us some practical ways to live out our faith. He wants us to continue to trust in Christ alone. Now he's given us exhortations um, to what, what, what it looks like to walk in faith in the midst of persecution, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of the unknown. Uh, all of this by, uh, is which the congregation is going through. And, and, and we're going through a lot of unknowns and a lot of difficulties and a lot of stresses and a lot of worries and a lot of things going on. And we would be reminded, uh, as this book teaches us, to place our faith, to keep our faith, to keep trusting in Christ. Last week, we looked at just a couple of those exhortations, right? What does it look like to live out the gospel? Verse 1, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Brotherly love should continue. Verse 2, love them by welcoming strangers in your homes and caring for their needs. Verse 3, loving and caring for those who are in prison because of their faith. Verse 4, to love your spouse, to honor marriage uh, by rejecting low view of marriage or by evading sexual immorality. Verse 5 and 6, not to love money, but be content with what the Lord has given you, right? We don't love money and use people. We love people and use money to love them. Verses 9 through 14 in chapter 13, we're exhorted to preserve in our faith through the means of grace, not through food. He's talking about old ceremonial ways in which people would commune with God. He said, don't go back, but rather feast on Christ. He is the bread of life. And all those who are nourished by his body and his blood, 
spiritually speaking, will never hunger, never thirst, John tells us in his gospel account. And we are to go outside the camp to the altar. Chapter 13, verse 14 tells us. 12, 13, and 14 tells us. We should go outside the camp and the altar, which is the cross, where he bled and died for us. That is where we will find our Savior. And uh, verse 13, we do not bear the reproach. Uh, that's where we bear the reproach, excuse me, the mocking, the insults that our faith can bring into our lives. 13 and 14. And finally, look at verse 14 with me. For we have no lasting city. So why would we do this? Why would we trust in Christ? Why would we bear the, 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 the mocking and the insults? Because verse 14 tells us, for here we have no lasting city. This is not our home. But we seek the city that is to come. We are to keep our eyes on King Jesus who will bring in his kingdom, usher in a renewed, redeemed, and everlasting city. What great joy it will be when Christ the King comes, reigns, and rules in a perfect, righteous, healed creation. And that's where we pick up today. Uh, so what I will do to you, for you, uh, for us this morning is, um, last week we skipped verses 7 and 8. So I want to jump in there and then go down to verse 15 through 19. So that's our text this morning. Chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, and then 17 through 19. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. For what, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, verse 18. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, verse 19, the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now, before we jump down into verse 17, uh, well, actually verse 7, and consider church leadership, the importance of church leadership, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, I just want to ponder for a few minutes on verses 15 and 16. We really didn't look at that and, and it's major in its context. So look with me again in verse 15 and 16. I think I have it. Yes, I do. Verse 15, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, let me put that in context because we're kind of jumping around a little bit uh, there for you, okay? So context is verses 13, 11 through 15, 11 through 14 is the context. And the context is this, Christ came and now Christ, because of Christ and because of his new covenant, that he mediates in his shed blood, the offer of animal sacrifices are no longer needed. All that was prescribed by God in the old covenant as the animal sacrifice was given to the people of God were no longer needed. Why? Because now God's wrath towards sinners has been fully satisfied in the self-substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's the gospel. 
That's the gospel. Look at uh, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's talking about the work of Christ. His perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the grave. Now, in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 12 is one of the key verses of the entire book of Hebrews. It says this, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, into the very presence of God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, Old Testament rituals, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay, that's, that's the context. Chapter 13, verse 13, verse 14, uh, excuse me, verse 12, he suffered outside the gate. We are to go there to him. We have a city. And then he picks up in verse 15. Notice the language. He exhorts his readers because of the gospel, because of Christ's sacrifice, because of his blood that was shed. He exhorts them in verse 15 to continually offer up pleasing sacrifices of praise to God. Because of the gospel, offer up sacrifice of praise to God. We're not to offer up blood animals. It's over. Christ fulfilled it. It is a sacrifice of praise and worship to God. And what is the means? What is the avenue of this praise and worship of God? Notice what it says. It's very important. The sacrifice comes what? Through him then let us. Through him. That preposition is eternally and infinitely important. We do not offer up the sacrifice of praise in our own names, in our own power, in our own strength. We do so through Jesus, the mediator, the savior of the world. Very important. We can only come, what the scriptures teaching us, we can only come to the Father bringing acceptable sacrifices of praise if we come and we offer it mediated through the Son of, Christ, of God. What does that look like? Look what it says. The fruit of lips that acknowledge, confess, uh, admit, admit, declare, his name, his name. Our lips are to shout what our hearts believe. Jesus is, is all sufficient, always superior, and his never-ending supremacy is our only hope. And we are to declare it and, 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 and just shout the wonders of God's grace. And, and I, I don't think the text is talking only about, it's part of it, but not only about gathering together. With God's people on a Sunday morning. But I, I think he's talking about, and you could, you could see it, he's talking about this whole manner of speaking. All the things we say are either a confession that Christ is Lord and Savior, or it contradicts what we believe. Remember, what, what we say through our lips reveals what's in our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12. The only way we can have clean mouths then is to have clean hearts, a clean conscience, a work of Christ. D.R. Phillips says this, clean and wholesome speech, therefore, indicates a whole life lived to the praise of God, end quote. But how hard is it to tame the tongue? Especially when you're stressed out, right? Cooped up. Not knowing what the future holds seems a little bit harder, doesn't it? Or am I the only one? I don't think so. James 3, the tongues of fire, world of unrighteousness. It sets among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life. It is, it is restless, 
evil, full of deadly poison. Words are powerful weapons, but words are also powerful instruments of blessing, of worship, of praise. So let me encourage you in this season to be careful what we say. To allow the Holy Spirit to drive our mouths, our tongues, our words. The fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and all the other. Let, let that be to us. Especially in this, this difficult time as we speak to one another. In our homes and our friends and especially our spouses and our children. To be careful and to rest. And to give a word of praise and a blessing and a worship to God. And not only are we to offer a praise to God because of the gospel. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See that? Praising God with our lips and then we're praising God by doing good. Doing good and loving others by sharing what you have are described as sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Sharing material needs with kindness and caring for one another is a a gospel-driven desire. It flows from the gospel. And when God plants a church, we should see a willingness in that church to share. A gospel-centered church shows generosity to those in need. They, They freely give their stuff. They are generous with their things. Why? Because that's the gospel. That we were in desperate need, in darkness, separated from God. And God met those needs in the generosity of the gospel. Also, a gospel-centered church shows generosity because we know it pleases and glorifies God as we love and care for people. We are to worship God with our lips and we are to love and do good and share with others as Pastor Chris mentioned. Uh, and that's what's happening here. And, and people are looking for ways and it's difficult. I, I, I'm talking to some people this week. It's, it's hard to try to navigate what it looks like to really care and love people in this quarantine. I, I get it. But God will show himself faithful and he will give you opportunities and give me opportunities to show the love of gospel, the love of Christ, love of the gospel to others. Romans 12.1, I urge you, brethren, By the mercy of God to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, I I want to give my whole life as a sacrifice since Christ gave himself as a sacrifice that redeemed us, that redeemed you and I and allowed you into fellowship with him. That's what Christianity is all about. His work in us and through us. F.F. Bruce said this. Christianity is sacrificial through and through. It is founded on the one self-offering of Christ. And the offering of his people's praise and property, their service and their lives is caught up into the perfection of his acceptable sacrifice and is accepted by him. In other words, what he's saying, it is through, which we started out, it is through him that we are to praise and worship him. And part of that work, Part of that work, part of that gospel work is not only just praising and worshiping him with our tongue, with our lips, excuse me, or not neglecting to share. But look at verse 17. Leadership. Response of leaders in the church, the congregation's response to leadership in the church has to do with the gospel. And the writer moves from this verse 15 and verse 16, the living out of the gospel 
Back to what he really started back in verse 7, the importance of godly, not perfect leaders in the church. Part of the gospel, part of the outworking of the gospel. So three things, we'll go through them quickly. Number one, remember and model your former leaders. That's verses 7 and 8. Obey and submit to present leaders, verse 17. And then finally, pray and long for absent leaders, verse 18 and 19. So let's go back. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. The leaders were not mentioned by name, but their life was certainly pointed to. We don't know whether they're talking about the apostles, possibly who planted the church, or some other church leaders, but I think it's safe to say that the leaders they are supposed to remember introduced them to the gospel, taught them the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, many commentators uh, say that these people, that, these leaders we're supposed to remember are those who have passed on and, and possibly died. Maybe, probably, probable, not sure, but maybe it's, it's those who have gone on before them. But they are to remember these people. Now, I hope that you're like me. I hope that you're like me, that you had men or women in your life. I had men by the, Pastor uh, Sam Bellavia, Pastor John Cherico, I've known for 30 years. Um, two men who with great patience <laughs> taught me the gospel, taught me the word of God. I'm greatly encouraged when I think of them. I praise God that in his good and wise uh, providence, he brought these two men into my life. They may not feel that way, but I do. Um, perhaps, maybe you remember a parent, a grandparent, a, a children's church teacher, a Sunday school teacher who was faithful, who taught you the word, who spent time opening up scriptures and sharing with you the truth of Christ. Notice, though, also, the author doesn't say just remember them. He says, but consider their outcome of their way. Imitate their faith. In other words, by instruction and example, these teachers of the word of God, although they may have passed away, showed the right path, or the right path to walk, being no longer present. They're still speaking to our souls, still speaking to our heart as examples of the faith. They still live in the memory of our minds. You know, back in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews mentions many people in a uh, long, long time ago. He mentions Abraham and David and other people uh, that we are to follow their example of their faith. And, and, and that's, that's great and that's true and that's, that's something we need to, to remember. But I think what he's doing here is saying, not only remember those who you've never met, he's saying now remember those that you knew. And and who had planted this community, who has shared the word, shared the gospel, followed their examples. Something very special about remembering people that you had personal relationship with. Those who ministered the word, those who cared, those who, who walked before you, and those who you walked alongside, followed their lead, followed their example. They ran the race. They were steadfast to the end, and you can too. That's what That's what he's saying here. And I, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, let's flip this around a little bit and ask this question. Are, are you and I running a race in such a way that we are leading by example? Paul said to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul knew very well that his only hope, the hope of glory was Christ. But he was willing to say, listen, watch me, study and reflect upon my life, and do likewise. 
The times he, 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 he relied on the Lord. Times in which he, was, he, he boldly stood with Christ. He boldly stood in Christ, in union with Christ. I praise God for those men and women in my life that I have come across, uh, our paths have crossed that have taught me so much, who have sustained until the end. I think of a sweet Elizabeth Varney and my dear friend David Chowenhill, Pastor Don Lyon who passed away recently. Examples of the faith, those who were resolved to trust in the Lord, to, to firmly stand on His Word, to, to rely fully on His matchless grace. It was and continues to be a huge encouragement to me. Yeah, and I, and I know there are some that have failed along the way. I think we all come across those. I get it. We are instructed to honor those who are faithful. We are instructed to honor those who are faithful in our life and recognize that we owe much to them who taught us the word, modeled for us what it meant to live out the gospel, live in light of the truth of the gospel, to remember them. And although we're encouraged, and, and we need to be, to follow their examples, but we always must remember verse 8. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You may be thinking now, what does that have to do with verse 7? Well, here's the point. Those leaders who taught us God's word, those leaders who lived a life of faith, are fallen and frail humans, just like us. And we're to remember them, but we are not to expect them to live perfectly because they ultimately, and we are ultimately, all following and serving Jesus Christ himself. The leader, capital L, <laughs> you and I serve and trust and finally and fully follow is none other than Jesus. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think the author is just pointing out the contrast of this changeableness and this fickleness of humans and life on planet earth we are constantly changing human personalities never ceases changing some as they get older get sweeter and some not so much but praise god god does not change father son and spirit in fact the old testament is interesting the very same old testament scriptures that speak about god the father's immutableness is unchanging uh, is, is the fact that he doesn't change, are applied to Christ himself, showing the deity of Christ. It's in um, Psalm 102, Hebrews 1, 12, Isaiah 48, Revelation 1. What this means is that our Savior has come and died and rose and ascended to the heavens where he dwells in glory. But he is the same. Our great high priest is eternally the same. We, we need not fear opinion changes or mood changes in Jesus. No matter what lies ahead in our continuously changing world, oh boy, is it ever. Continually uh, changing character and attitudes. Remember those who have gone before, but ultimately look to Jesus, our unchangeable God. Times and errors and cultures come and go. But Jesus Christ is always the same. It's not a tradition. It's not a philosophy of man we serve, but Jesus Christ the Savior of sinners, the Son of God, who calls everyone everywhere at all times to repent and believe the gospel, to repent of their sins, place their faith in His person and His work on the cross. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 never changes. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Human leaders have, have much to teach us. 
Yes. And we learn and we can emulate them. But we got to keep our eyes on Christ. We got to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Leaders will fall. Leaders are sinful. Leaders sin, I should say. But Christ has been and will always be the same. And that's a word for us this morning. In a world that is not only changing, not only fragile, not only temporary, we can trust our unchanging Lord in a very, very changing world. That's for us this morning. Remember your leaders, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Verse 17. Again, remember the context, the gospel. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and with, and not with groaning for what, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now I know many of you, that's your life verse, I'm sure, right? That, that's, you have that framed in your homes. It's, it's Joshua, you know, uh, I, I, we're gonna serve the Lord and, and submit and obey to your leaders, right? You know, whenever we talk about obedience, whenever we talk about submission, I think in all of us there's a sense of, uh, a hardness, a rebelliousness that, we you know, that doesn't really sit well. You can feel the back of your hair stand up on your neck, right? And if we're honest, there are two extremes to this passage. One, we people use this passage, obey your leaders, submit to them as a tool, as a weapon to control other people. The second thing that is an extreme is we can ignore it. And then leaders ignore it. They fail miserably in their leadership. And others can fail to properly submit and obey to their proper authorities. It's very telling how when we talk about obedience and submission, everybody becomes a detective. Everybody wants to point out the faults and failings and imperfections of people in which they are supposed to submit to. But think with me for a minute. We tell children to obey, submit to imperfect parents. Women, married women are told to submit to their imperfect husbands. Many times we're told and we need to submit to our bosses even though we think we can run the company better, right? It's imperfect. So congregations are here told to submit and obey to the overseers, the pastor elders of the church, imperfect men. Of course there must be balance, right? You know I'm all about balance. If church leaders, that includes me, and all the other pastors start telling you that the word of God is not the word of God, that Jesus is not the son of God, God himself in the flesh who died and rose again, then certainly strap a chunk of wood on my back, take me out back and burn me at the stake. I'm good with it. And there are those who are truly abusive in their leadership. They should be removed, obviously. This is not instructions. This instruction is not to follow blindly a mindless obedience submission. The leaders, the pastors of the local church are not above questioning or even public discipline. This is not an unqualified blanket obedience, the kind that, you know, Jim Jones with the murdering of all those people. That's not what he's saying. It's not about authoritarian churches like some of the, some of the smaller house churches where everyone submits everything to their leaders. But this is a command of scripture. There, there needs to be submission in the home. There needs to be submission at work. There needs, needs to be submission in the government. There needs to be submission in society. And there needs to be submission in leadership in the local church. 
But what are some of the things to consider? I, I, I want to take a little time on this because I know this can open up a, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and maybe some confusion. So what are some of the things to consider when we talk about obedience and submission to church leaders? So first thing is this. Good and biblical leaders, good biblical leaders, are first under the authority of Christ. And they are under his authority and submit to him. Right? You can't be in authority unless you are first under authority. Also, we have to recognize that God gave the church the gift of leaders because we need teachers. Look at the text. We need teachers and leaders who can keep watch over our souls. And the word keep watch is an interesting word. It literally means to keep oneself awake. So the idea may well mean that leaders have lost sleep over certain people in the church. And this watching over the people is motivated. Look what it says. They must give an account. To God for the way they care for the flock. This authority is not arbitrary. It's not self-serving. It is for our benefit. For the body of Christ. And the purpose is for us as leaders to do our best. To encourage you. And to help you to walk closely with Jesus. Biblical leaders are marked by love. Biblical leaders are marked by patience. Biblical leaders, I've, I've, I've said before, are, have a well-established motive of serving people for God's glory and their good. The sobering fact is, we will give an account. James tells us, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And the sobering fact is, spiritual responsibility brings higher level of spiritual uh, judgment. So we have to be careful. So we are responsible and accountable to God. Leaders are, and to the community. But the congregation has a responsibility to have a spirit of humility and submission and obedience. The the gentle spirit of submission and obedience to authority is is essential. It's it's part of life as a believer. Part of walking with the fullness of the spirit. And as our church is marked by humility and and submission to Christ, our communities will grow and and be used as a tool to expand the kingdom of God. But this is America, where individualism and subjectivism reigns, and people are infected with this, I could do it alone, I don't need help, I don't need any teachers, I don't need any spiritual leaders interfering with my life. And add fuel to the fire, this anti-authoritarian mentality, and you have a huge leadership crisis in the church. An entire congregation uh, uh, struggling and burnt out pastors and, 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 and beat up pastors. And I know, I know that there's some that you're thinking, maybe you're thinking, well, there are leaders in the church that have led poorly to the point of calling it abuse. I realize that. I realize that church leaders have shot themselves in the foot and not led well. I highly recommend the book for anyone who's thinking of becoming a, a leader in the church, particularly a pastor, elder leader, to read a book called The Dark Side of Leadership. And it gives us five ways in which we lead poorly. And I speak to the other pastors in the church and those who aspire to be pastors. Maybe you can just pick this up in wherever leadership you are in whatever position and role you're in. But five ways to lead poorly. And this is what he writes. He says, the compulsive leader is the one who needs to maintain absolute order. Compulsive leader needs to maintain absolute order. The narcissist leader leads by believing his image is everything. The world revolves around him. 
the paranoid leader who is desperately afraid of anything or anyone, whether real or imagined, who may undermine his leadership and take away and steal away his limelight. You got the codependent leader who cares so much for other people, does not have enough value and worth in himself to care for himself. You have the passive aggressive leader, demands control, but then is absent. That's a list of five ways to not lead well. Biblical leaders, those who submit to the authority of Christ. Gospel-centered leaders rest in their gospel identities. They recognize their failures. They recognize the frailties of their own lives as common to all of us. But they also recognize their value and their worth and their calling and their acceptance before God is not about their performance their positions, their titles, their achievements, or power. It exists independently of anything they have done or will ever do. Because our greatest source, our greatest value, our acceptance before God is through Christ. It's being known by God. It's being declared, imputed righteousness of Christ on our behalf. And out of love, out of compassion, out of acceptance in the fullness of Christ and the gospel, Leaders, biblical leaders, do what First Thessalonians tells us. We admonish the idle. We encourage the faint-hearted. We help the weak. We're patient with everyone. We see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Love, caring, shepherding, giving account, watching over souls, loving people, being patient with people. And now look, look at the second part of 17. We're going to let them do this, how? With joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. (laughs) The word groaning is a strong word. It's not only just being unappreciated, it means being opposed to the work, to the preaching and declaring of the gospel, the teaching of the word, the correction of the word of God. You know what the hardest part of pastoring churches are? When brothers and sisters neglect the word, walk away from the word, walk in disobedience to Christ. I lost more sleep during that time or disciplined members of the church than I have ever done in my days of ministry. Godly leaders feel the weight. Their hearts are broken when people within the community refuse to grow, refuse to change, refuse to receive loving, corrective exhortations. Moses, (laughs) if anybody knew this better, it was Moses. Moses grieved over and over again about the Israelites who just refused to listen to him and refused to ultimately obey God when God would speak to Moses. And and Moses went back to the people and they just would not listen. It got so bad for Moses. It got so bad for Moses. This is what he said in Numbers 11, 14, talking to God. He says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, O Lord, kill me at once. Well, let's hope we don't get to that place, right? But do you know what makes spiritual leadership a joy and not a burden? A hunger for the word, a willingness to believe and obey God's word, a hunger to know the will of God. It's discouraging when, when communities come together and they don't believe, they're not under the word, they're not responding to the teacher, to the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. But I'll tell you this, as pastor elders, when, when we love well, when we shepherd well, we oversee your soul well, when there's a congregation who worships the Lord, willingly responding to the word of God, it becomes a huge advantage, not a disadvantage, to the community. The joy 
of a unified, gospel-centered church like King's Chapel. It's truly a blessing. The Apostle John wrote this, and I could tell you the pastors here would mimic this. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So the call to obey and submit to, to, to the leadership is, is to submit to loving, godly, not perfect leaders. Realizing they're an appointed gift to the church. They have a high calling. They're going to be accountable for their calling. Their imperfect character should become more loving, more patient, and yes, at times corrective with the right motives. Believers' obedience will bring joy instead of pain and preserve their souls. It's not blind obedience, but respectful, submissive attitude. God's people must always be discerning. It's not just believing everything everyone says. It's not what I'm saying. In fact, he said early in verse 9, we are warning against diverse and strange doctrine. They must not accept things to be true just because a leader said so. But at the same time, there should be an attitude of submission to godly biblical leaders and authority and a working together for God's glory and our joy. So you have remembering your former leaders, obey and submit to present leaders, and now pray for long Absent leaders. Let's just look at these last verses together. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now, this exhortation, pray for us, is a Greek present tense verb. It's an imperative, a command. Keep on praying. As we're saying, you're praying for me, and I don't want you to stop. Just continually to pray. Now, I'm not, I don't want to read too much into this text, and maybe I am a little bit, but it seems to me that whoever this godly person is, whoever this apostolic person is, he is assuring them that everything he wrote to them, he wrote to them with a clear conscience, but he's asking now for prayer in that same context. I think he's saying, look, I, I'm fragile, I'm frail, just like you. I fulfilled my duty, yes. I've done it well, I loved you, but now he's saying, please pray for me because I want to continue to be faithful. I want to continue to serve God well. I want to continue to serve God with a clear conscience and live honorably as an example to others around me. Pray for me to act honorably. To act honorably means to a resolve to live rightly, to live morally. He wants to know that everything he said to them, and some of the words were hard. Some of the warnings that we read in this book have been difficulty, but it was done honorably, rightly, morally as he treated them, for their good. And now, because of his conduct and motive, the author says, listen, pray for me. Pray that I continue this. In fact, he needs it desperately. He says, I need your prayers right now. Philip used in his commentary, which is a wonderful commentary on, in, in Hebrews, says something very interesting. He says this, as a genuine Christian friend and mentor should do, he, the author, has spoken very frankly of the perils by which he sees their spiritual well-being threatened. Right? We talked about that. And he is sure that he has a clear conscience that his conduct in relations to them can stand the scrutiny both of man and of God. That's what biblical leaders want to be able to do. But, he says, the impulse behind the stern admonition character of much of his letter has not been hostility or an authoritarian desire to inflate his own importance at their expense. 
that he has spoken the truth in love and compassion is confirmed by this appeal to them to pray for him, end quote. In other words, listen, I love you. You know that I do. I know I had to say hard things to you. I'm not coming across as, listen, you have to do this because I said so. I'm encouraging you. I'm strengthening you. I'm exhorting you. And he's appealing to them. And he's saying, listen, pray for me. Pray for me too. I know you need prayer. I know you need help, but so do I. And I'm going to tell you this morning, on behalf of all the pastor elders of your church, we need your prayers. We need your prayers. We need the grace of God too. We need your intercession to the Father on our behalf that we would lead well, that we would love well. Praying for us is a recognition of, of, of the weightiness of our role and responsibility to the church in which we love doing and we love you. It's a recognition that we too are frail and we have sinful tendencies. We all do. So pray for us. Remember us in your prayers. Verse 19 to close. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to pray, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. That I may be restored to you the sooner. Not only does he pray from a distance, he's saying, pray that we would be united again, together, the people of God. I mean, this plea is is just showing how much this author, whoever wrote this epistle, just loves these people. And these people love him. It's mutual. If they don't pray, maybe he won't be restored to them. Maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it'll be slow. But if you pray, he believes this can happen. It can be, prayers is a way in which he wants his, his restoration with these people to be quickened. So he's telling them to do so. He says in these last exhortations, right, to, to sing the praise of God in word and deed, submit to your pastors and pray for them. And this particular text This particular text of Scripture was assigned to be preached on this morning a long time ago. On this particular day, preached on this particular day, we were supposed to have this text. And here we are, unable to gather together. Unable to see each other face to face. You see me, I don't see you, right? And technology has just been wonderful in getting the Word of God out But this could never replace the gathering of the people of God. We want you to know that our pastors and elders here at our church long for us to be together. And I know many of you feel the same way. And this longing to be together is quite appropriate and rather healthy. In fact, one of the concerns that's being kicked around in in Christian circles and in the leadership circles is that this idea that people will now be used to Logging in, watching online, doing church online once this virus is gone and we can gather together. And that may be true for some, but not for us. Because of our love for Christ, for our love for Christ, our love for the gospel has brought us and joined us together as one family. United by the Father's love, brought together by the cross to shed blood of Jesus, our union with him in the gospel, and through the eternal spirit, we are brought into one body. And we as a family long for leaders to be together with the flock and for the flock to be together with its leaders. That's good. It's biblical. It's healthy. We need to pray. Pray for you. Pray for me. Pray for the pastor elders as we lift up the congregation in prayer. The, the letter, excuse me, the writing uh, Paul wrote, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, and I think we can all say and kind of feel um, 
what he said. And this is what he said. He said, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you and I were called to the one hope that belongs to this call. One Lord, one faith, one baptisms, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he writes to the Corinthians, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for technology. We thank you that we could be in our homes and we could connect online. We thank you for that. But God, we recognize that we're called to be together as well. And we know we can't be for now, but we long for the day in which we will be. And God, you remind us day by day to pray for one another, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our friends, to pray for those around the world. Lord, to to pray for opportunities that the word of God can go out. And Lord, we pray that we will be a people who are submissive to you first and walk together so that, Lord, many will see our love for one another and how we live our life together as a church would declare and demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Christ died for his church. And we as a church should submit to him and give our lives to him. So, Father, we thank you so much for this body of Christ, this body that you brought together. And we pray, Father, that this soon, uh, these days will soon be over and that we can gather together. And this longing we embrace because it's a longing that you have placed in our heart to be together again. We love you and we look forward to gathering together. Until that time, we'll keep trusting you, relying upon you, looking to you, having faith in you, knowing that you are our loving Father and you are in control. In Jesus' name, amen.